Welcome to the Renovating Riches Podcast. Entrepreneurs from Houston teaching you everything they know about entrepreneurship and real estate with the best guests in the real estate industry. Subscribe today on all major platforms and gear up for another episode of Renovating Riches. Welcome to the Renovating Riches Radio Podcast, and today we have a special guest. Uh, his name is A.G. That's right, man. The head of real acquisitions and a bunch of other things related to real estate <laughs> when it comes to building and, and doing events in town. So, A.G., thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it, Ricardo. No, I appreciate you. Pumped up to be here. So, who is A.G., man? Where do you come from? I come from India. All right. I come from India... And uh, I mean, I can jump into the whole story, but yeah, that's the that's the short and sweet of it. Uh, when I speak in public, I sometimes say that uh, uh, my funny Italian accent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's as as Indian as it gets. Right. What part of India? <laughs> I grew up in uh, the capital, which is Delhi. Okay. And how old were you when you left India? I was uh, 17. Oh wow! Yeah. So you grew up there, and you're pretty much. You have your Indian um, culture pretty ingrained in you. That is right. That is right. I, I think uh, a lot of people that are first-generation Indians, uh, um, I, I think I am that unique age where I was able to come where I think culturally uh, I'm still Indian. Okay. Ethnically, on the other hand, I've transitioned more and more. Because you think now as an American. Exactly. I've been here so long. So I'm able to connect with, with fresh-off-the-boat people. Yeah. As well as folks who've been here for a long time. Yeah, because you were <laughs> on that boat at some point, right? I was so. on that boat for 28 hours one way. <laughs> yeah, okay. How do you, uh, so what brought you to, to, to America? Like, how do you end up here? It's a funny story. You want to get into it? Yeah, yeah. So the story is that uh, 1980s, I'm a 1980s kid, I grew up watching this, this show called Dallas. <laughs> yeah, I remember that show. That's right. It's, it's, uh, it was the first, one of the first syndicated shows that was that was broadcast in India. Okay. Uh, first exposure of Indians to broadcast American TV. Big cowboy hats. That's right. You that's know. right. JR. Yeah, where, where JR. Do think, where yeah. do you think AG comes from? Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> but the funny story is that I was so uh, taken aback by that way of life that that seed to come to U.S. was planted by by that show. Wow. And believe it or not. So anyway, I go to my dad and say, hey, listen, I, I, I'd like to go to U.S. He says, great, do, go do your research. Tell me what, you, what is it that you need. Um, so the only way to find out the universities or places that you could study at at that time was to go literally to the U.S. Embassy, pull out these big, fat books, and look at all the universities and pick a place. So I don't know what I was thinking or, or doing, but I picked up uh, a Mormon university in Utah, I picked up Oklahoma oh, wow. State, and I picked up uh, uh, Binghamton, sunny, uh, sunny Binghamton Upstate. And as God had it, I got uh, I got admitted to Oklahoma State. Oh wow! So I, I go to my dad and say, "Hey, uh, you, and obviously you, you prepare for it. You know, you, you take English uh, exams. Yeah, you prepare for all TOEFL these, and all that all stuff. that bunch of stuff. It takes two, three years of preparation." To, to, to do that. So anyway, at the end of it, I got admitted. I go to my dad and say, hey, I'm in. He says, okay, how much do you need? I said, I need 2,500 bucks. 
which was the first year, first semester uh, tuition fee for Oklahoma State. Right. So he says, hey, no problem. He gives me that 2500 bucks. Wow, what did your dad do back then? He, he, this is a funny story. Well, not funny. It was a it was a pretty impactful story in my life because the funny thing is uh, I did not even know this, but the more I live my life, I'm now in my 40s, I realize when you grow up poor, a lot of kids don't sometimes know that they're growing up poor. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really realize how much of that big deal that 2500 bucks was, was for, for him. For, for him. In fact, I came to know years later that he had liquidated Ricardo his entire life savings. Oh, wow. You call it a provident fund or the 401k equivalent right. to come up with that 2500 bucks. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it was a pretty big deal. But anyway, he hands me that check and I catch a flight. I land up 28 hours via Atlanta to Stillwater, Oklahoma. Wow. <laughs> and a what's whole the whole different world. A whole different world. Um, and the first stop that I make was to the registrar's office to pay a tuition fee. Right. So I, I pull out this check. I'm, I'm standing in front of this lovely woman, and she says, well, son, welcome to U.S. You're $1,000 short. Oh, fees. That's right. Because taxes, I, fees, whatever. In state and out of state. Yeah. I, I didn't even know that there was something called an out-of-state tuition fee, and all I had done was based on that little book's research, and it was in-state tuition fee. Wow. And that was a very defining moment for me. I think that... <laughs> How do you source the, those other thousand bucks? I'll, I'll tell you what, what exactly happened, but there was a realization that occurred to me. And, and, you know, sometimes people don't have these pivotal falls in their lives. Uh, I was, in fact, li listening to a, a talk at my son's school this morning about how our kids are growing up where we're not exposing them to struggle. Mm-hmm all their struggles are more or less being taken care of by the parents. Um, but that experience where I was $1,000 short, my parents had liquidated their life savings for at, years I'd prepared. And at 17. Yes, and, my, and for years I'd prepared for this moment, you know. Right. And I dreamed of this moment. And just like this, it was about to be taken away. Wow. Uh, and the reason that experience became important to me, and I'll tell you how I got out of it, but the reason that, that experience became so formative in my life because anytime failure happens which it does to everybody oh yes <laughs> i'm able yeah. to go back to that moment and say you know what if i can get out of that at 17 i can get out of this thing you know i read that book uh the alchemist by paulo coelho yeah yeah and that's when i realized phenomenal book. all my failures you know up to that point I started laughing. I mean, I was literally crying out loud. I was on, a, on an airplane from Perth, Australia to Singapore. I was in the oil and gas business back then. And after I got done with the book, I finally realized why I had all these struggles in the past. It all made sense at that point. So what you're saying is so important. You know, failure is going to happen. It's just a matter of when. It is. And how it comes. Um, and how you handle it. Yeah. And and for you to go back and say, man, when I was 17 and I just landed in Oklahoma, did you speak? You you spoke English at the I time, did. right? So, I did. Because um, that's another one. What if you didn't <laughs> speak English, right? Like, like no, I, I was lucky that the most in 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 India you grew up. Yeah, most you people grew up speaking yeah, English. Grew up English. But anywho, so I'm standing outside crying my guts out, and it, it uh, it's almost like the movies. This cowboy drives up. 
and he's looking at this young dude sitting in front and crying. He says, son, what's going on? So I spilled my guts to him. And you know, like my first exposure to Southern men, they don't talk right. much. Uh, so he looks back at our university mascot. A university mascot was Pistol Pete. Okay. One-eyed cowboy bandit. I, I don't know what they were thinking, but it's a cowboy bandit. And it's a big 40-foot banner hanging from the university walls. It must have been some event. He says, do you see those two words written below Pistol Pete? The land of the free and the home of the brave. Yeah. Now, if you grow up here, it's part of your constitution, I think. Right. But believe it or not, Ricardo, if you're coming to this country, they don't make you study the basic founding principles of this country at all. No. Which they should. I think it should be absolutely mandatory in your visa application of understanding and studying some of the basic founding principles that you need to have. Mm -hmm. Screw English if you don't know English. Right. But if you don't know what's the fabric of the society and what are the things that you need to have to be able to thrive here, shame on you. Don't come to this country. Right. So anywho, he says, you know what that means? He says, land of the free means, son, for the first time in your life, you are free to work as much as you want. And do you know the meaning of the second line? He said, no. Very few actually are brave enough to do it. Wow. And he walks away. So I got the meaning of the first line. Just roll up your sleeves and work. Yeah. But it took me years to understand the meaning of the second. Being brave. Being brave. What does that really mean? Everybody, if you can make money, why wouldn't you make money? Um, so for, I, I went and I got myself, I, I cleaned toilets uh, at night. And in the mornings, I worked at the school cafeteria. And in the afternoons, I took a shift at Burger King. I came up with a thousand bucks and I paid my way through school. And where do you ended up uh, when you got there, right? So did you go to dorm or did you rent an apartment? How, how did that work? So what happens is that most international students, when they land a pair, right. have an association with their local. So I had an association with the Indian Students Association. Okay. So they were like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll set you up and, and, and all that stuff. At least that was covered. Like, you you, you had a couch to land on I had a couch to land yeah. on, yes. I had a couch to land on and, you know, I, I, had, I had roof over my, over, my, over my head. But, you know, from a financial standpoint, what I did was not unique. I think millions of immigrants before me did that and probably we, we millions. All we all do it. Right? We nothing, all do it. Nothing unique about that. But the interesting thing is this. Uh, after years and years and years of doing whatever I did, it took me to understand the meaning of the second line, which is very few people are brave enough to do it, which is, it is surprising that in this country, and probably most places, very few people have the bravado, the courage, to rise above their excuses. Well, there is a, there is, I think there is a reason behind it. Uh, I grew up in Venezuela, right? So I guess from from a I guess heritage we're we're different, but we're not much that, that much different. Because we don't it, it's not given to us. Yes. So we have to work. Yes. For what we're going to have and Amer in America in the US and we go through that as parents, right? Uh, the kids have it all. <laughs> Everything is available to them. Well, when I wanted, a, I don't know, a, a pair of sneakers, my dad couldn't afford a $100 pair of sneakers. I mean, maybe he could buy one once a year. <laughs> and to me, I mean, I would, I would wear that thing for like three, the next three years. Yeah. 
and and to make sure that when I got the next one, I wouldn't run him down so fast. But you know, it, it's different culturally. We're set up different, so we're set up. We a lot of us grow up in struggle. Not all of us, because there's kids out there that you know in any country that got everything. But a lot of us grew up through struggles and financially. But you're right. We don't know we're poor. We don't know. We're, I didn't even realize we're below. I, I think like I, I remember being fed uh, bread and butter. Yeah. My grandma would give me bread and butter. She wouldn't put any ham or cheese because <laughs> guess what? There was no money for ham and cheese, but there was money for bread and butter. Yeah. But to me, that was normal. Okay, this is what I got to eat, you know. I don't know any different. I don't know how the other kids are being fed at home. Or maybe if I went to another kid's house and I see that they have a, a feast of food, it would be weird. Like, man, you guys I, eat that much. I never much. got asked. I don't remember ever my parents asking, so what would you like for lunch today? The conversation never really happened. Just, that's it. That's Here's what lunch. Here's dinner. <laughs> yep. Uh, my grandmother used to feed us, and, and my both my parents were working all the time, so I would go eat lunch at my grandma's. And sometimes she'll put something in on the table and and i was like i would ask like is there something else and she's like no that's what we got that's it. you eat it or you don't eat yep. period i don't care how much you cry nowadays if the kid doesn't want that and we make that mistake we'll go feed them some something else right yep. so it's a complete different way of growing up uh and based on on i guess on the point we were touching we are wired to thrive in environments like this yes because we're competing against people that didn't have the same struggles you and I did. And that doesn't mean we had to grow up in a in a, an ultra poor family. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm, I, we weren't wealthy. We were, I guess, middle to low, high, depending on how well they were doing at the time, uh, at least in my case. But now, Everything is given to people, so the sense of entitlement is out there, and it's easier for us to win against these people that are entitled. That that's really the reality behind it. It is. I mean, you, if the, the crux of that whole uh, experience for me was be willing to work and don't make excuses. Mm -hmm. That's basically it. If you live your life by that principle, at, at least as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I think I absolutely agree with you. You will be way ahead of most people that are just waiting for something or somebody to come and solve their problems for them. So, okay, so you go there, you get the three jobs, finally you come up with a thousand bucks, you pay your tuition. What do you go to school for? Like, what, what do you study? Tele telecom. I was in telecommunications. So my background, I graduated as an electrical engineer okay. with a specialty in telecom. Wow. Um, and today you're not doing much of that. You're, I mean, <laughs> even though real acquisitions is sort of an integrator of data. It is. Um, a telecom is so outdated now because everything is over the internet and yeah that time i mean the the late 90s early 2000s that was the thing you know that was supposed to be the the telecom revolution yep. and never really came fiber optics was a big thing fiber optics it will take off it all got replaced by the internet well yeah internet is the end product but the medium of delivery uh which was at that time supposed to be fiber optics uh was never really even now it's never really it's all wireless and after you graduated college or university, what what was next? I went into uh, I went into um, the telecom sector. I worked for a few years. Um, I did different gigs in the consulting arena till two thousand eight. Okay. Uh, two thousand eight, I started real acquisitions, and then two thousand nine, I 
packed my bags and I went full time in in business. And where were you here in Houston or or Houston? Houston. Okay, so you you left Oklahoma and came to Texas. That's right. Now you just drove past Dallas or did you stay there for a little bit? <laughs> no, no. My my girlfriend at the time and now my 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 bride, uh, she got a job in oil and gas in Houston. Okay. So she kind of paved the way. All right. And we loved it, man. We came to Houston and just a variety of food and people. They stuck with us. Yeah, Houston is a is a great, especially for food. Yeah. Uh, there is all kinds of restaurants <laughs> here, um, and oil and gas. You know, it yes. brings all these different cultures. You know, from all over the world. All over the world. So, so you start real acquisitions in two thousand nine, and and when, what was like through your going through your mind when you started it? What was your vision back then? So, but you know, like like most entrepreneurial endeavors, and real acquisitions wasn't my first entrepreneurial itch. It was my third. Okay. Won't bore you with other stories. That's a, that's a drink time conversation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, we realized. But those, but those two are the ones that took you to the third. Oh, one. absolutely, no doubt. Yes. You know, like we were talking about. You, know, you you do things not because you succeed. You do things because you fail at other things and yeah. you <laughs> learn from those things. Yeah. Uh, so I bought a home in, uh, in the Galleria area. It's a town home, and obviously land is expensive, and there's this unattended lot next to my home that no one is caring for. The, the weed is growing, people are throwing trash this there. This is what, 2009? 2009. Yeah, the 2009. market is completely tanked, destroyed. Well, Houston never went through that crazy crap, but yes. Yeah. And you know, in, I, was, I mean, it was a very nice part of town, so it was a very nice neighborhood, right. but just a lot next to me was in, was in shreds. So I contact my agent and I say, hey, listen man, this lot is going down to the shards. It's destroying my property value as well as an eyesore. I'd like to be able to buy it. Can you set it up? He's like, sure, no problem. And then he calls me a couple hours later. He says, uh, sorry, can't help you. I said, why? He says, it's an off-market lot. It's not on the market. It's not for sale. Right. I'm like, okay, so what do I do? He says, I can't help you. So, and that's what got the idea thinking. I'm like, okay, How do I find the owner? How do I find the owner? Watch as a novice what's the market value of this lot? How do I make an offer? What's wrong with it? What kind of liens exist in the property? What is a lien? So we wanted to, uh, so the idea of creating a platform that will simplify off-market acquisitions before everything like this was sexy. Now everybody talks about off-market, off-market, distressed off-market, but being able to do it uh, for a novice who is not coming from a real estate background, that's what got us started. So I, I make a post on a local email group asking a question. I said, hey, here's so-and-so, how do I do this? And no one responds. And there's one guy, his name was Clay Cahoon. Mm -hmm. I know him. I yeah, know so he responds and says, here's how you do it. I'm like, great, what a wonderful information. So I reach out to him and say, hey, I would like to learn more. So him and I got together, and I had another third friend who was in the IT business. I knew this much about IT, little. Yeah. Uh, so that's the how uh, the idea germinated, and then three of us started real acquisitions. Wow! And then eventually the business took off. Uh, it was at that time there, uh, all these uh, hedge funds were coming in town, 2010, 2011, um, and we wholesaled tons of properties to these guys. And 2013, I had this realization: is like, what am I doing as a wholesaler? Uh, the reality is. I'm not doing anything for my family. 
I'm not building a long-term. A long-term. Gen- I'm yeah. not building any generational wealth. Yeah, you're working for the IRS pretty much. Yeah, I am. <laughs> literally. Yeah, you're making good money, but you're working for the IRS. So 2013, I took a sabbatical from Realac, and from 2013 to 2015 and change, for two and a half years, my wife and I rolled up our sleeves and we went in single-family acquisition mode. Okay. We bought quite a few properties locally in town. In 2016. So you I, left real acquisitions to become a full-time real estate investor. I did. Perfect. I did. I, I did that for 30 months. Did nothing but single-family rentals. Um, and then 2016 came back, bought my partners out. And then my wife, I don't know why, but she had the the desire to go into construction. So 2016, we went in uh, residential construction. Was she employed at the time? Because she was, she was in the oil and gas business, she was, right? She was. She was employed and, you know. She's she, still employed? She is. She okay. still continues to operate in that space. Good for her. Yeah, if you, live, if you love what you do, why will you leave it, you know? Um, I, I used to love what I did in the oil and gas business, actually. Uh, I'm not a corporate hater. I, I believe everybody should have a job at some point in, in, in their life. Right. Um, I also believe everybody should be in the military at some point. <laughs> uh, but that's just one of my beliefs, right? That, that's a Venezuelan in you coming out. You know, yeah, well, you know, I, I served here in the U.S., right? So, oh, did you? Yes. Uh, so I, I, I was born here, oh. but I grew up in Venezuela. And at some point in my life, I was lost. I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, I had a lot of growing up to do. And I already had a daughter and a wife, and and I said, you know what? They're gonna give me discipline, insurance, and a paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I ended up joining the Navy. Sign me up. Oh, so I signed up. Like I literally walked in into the recruiter's office, and my name is Ricardo Rosales. the The name of the recruiter was Ricardo Rosado. It was very close to my name, and I was like, that's the universe telling me I need to like I'm in the right spot. So that's how I ended up joining the Navy, right? And the the work ethic that you get through it, the getting up early in the morning, yes sir, no sir, you know, respect. The, you start learning so much. I've always been respectful, but in the military they take it they take it up a notch. So I'm a firm believer that most of the kids should actually go at least experience a year or two, you know, of that, and and then go on a, about life. I think life will be much easier on people if they were to serve doesn't have to be in the U.S. Um, I lived in Singapore for a while, and all the kids there are actually obligated to join uh, military service for two years. And that's why I believe Singapore is one of the cleanest places on the earth, and, and you know, and, and, and everything works. So... Um, How long were you there? In, the, in Singapore? In the, in the Navy. Uh, in the Navy, four years. So I was, in, I was four years in the Navy, and then when I... <laughs> I was a mechanic, and I always like making money. So <laughs> there's no money in the military, um, at least when you're starting. And uh, I would see the oil rigs, and I was like, man, I wonder how much money mechanics make out there in the oil rigs. And that's kind of like what got my interest in the oil and gas business. And and four years later, I started applying for companies here in the Houston areas on the service side, and that's how I ended up here. But um, I was in the oil and gas business for 12 years, roughly. And I went from putting valves together all the way to running a $100 million business. And um, it, it, was, uh, it was an experience, and I loved what I did. Yeah, I can say that at the end, uh, I was a little disappointed at the white-collar corporate 
America that I got to see. Uh, I was in a company that I believe had a lot of, uh, was a great company, by the way, but I had a lot of bleeding from mismanagement and, and, and things of that nature, and I was disgusted by it, you know. And I couldn't do much about changing. I tried to change it, and that's what got me fired pretty much or laid off. <laughs> they laid me off, you know. <laughs> so um, I never believed in, like, stealing or anything like that, and I got to see that. And it's and he's, and he's awful. So, th- And, you know, I, I sometimes feel that a lot of people in our space, in the mom-and-pop single-family, small apartment space, who don't come from a corporate background miss out on certain work ethic and work discipline that I think corporate America or institutions like the military teach you. Mm-hmm. you know, coming to work on time, scheduling things, basic work principles, being organized. Those, those things, a lot of these people just don't have those skills. It's extremely important, I, I believe, to run a small, forget about a medium size and a big business, but small even a one. small business, you need some of these basic skills. I, I agree with you. Uh, I've actually interviewed quite a few people in the, on this podcast, and I've seen some guys that are doing great things. And when I ask them, so how do you, you know, what's your work schedule like? And they're really partying a lot. And, like, I guess they read the four-hour work week, and that's <laughs> literally what they want to live by, right? And I tell them, it's like, man, you can achieve so much more if you just apply yourself a little bit more uh, with discipline. And But they're like, no, nah, I just want to hang out, you know, or I just want to, you know, uh, I don't want all the stress. or So they limit their growth by by what, you, what you're just talking about, the missing in, in those things. So anyways, anyhow, real acquisitions. Um, the first time I heard real, uh, about real acquisitions was actually in 2016. It was the first time ever. And we were hiring, we were actually starting Same As Cash, which is our wholesaling company. We were hiring um, an acquisitions manager who happened to have a real acquisitions account. And we started using it uh, for all mail-outs because that's, that's how we got our properties back then, all mailers. I didn't know real acquisition started way before. Yeah. Um, we were the first guys who actually, there are quite a few copycats, and some of them are doing a good job, no doubt about right. that. Right. We have some good competition, which keeps us agile on our toes. But we were the first guys in the space. But I've seen your product improved, I mean, I would say 180 degrees out. I appreciate um, that. From from 2015 to what um, I saw a, a few months ago, it was a different. It was a different animal. Well, that, that's the nature of technology, right? right? Technology is a life cycle, I believe, of no more than 12 to 18 months. And uh, uh, if you don't innovate, you'll be just like that real estate guru who bought his last property in 1990s. Yeah, and is still teaching. How to do, do that? The 1990s method. The 1990s. Know. How I bought homes in 1990. Yeah. You know, so your product has to be constantly innovating, and which is what we are. I mean, our next release is about to come out. We are launching some pretty kick-ass things. In the, Can you say what's coming? Well, hold on to your belts and, and right. see what's coming. And the product is great right now the way it is. Do you have a launch, a launch date? What's that? Launch date? Not yet, man. Not yet, okay. You, you never announced a launch date in construction and in technology. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right about that. So, so okay, so you're beefing up real acquisitions now, and but you also do a lot of new constructions, right? I do, I do. 
Well, not a lot. We, we our typical volume is between eight to fifteen projects a year. Okay, but they're high end projects, so yeah, there's yeah, more attention to detail. It is loans are bigger. Yes, <laughs> uh, acquisitions is larger, right? Yes. Can you can you talk to us about what is it that you look for on a project to get you excited to say I'm going to buy that lot and build something on it? So I'll tell you the, the journey of I think most people that do new builds correctly. I mean, there are a lot of weekend warriors that we were talking about. You know, right. they, they go to this weekend seminar and they hear this guy who said, I made X amount of dollars and suddenly they're excited about new builds. But most people who do it correctly spend initial few months in smaller construction trades. They could be renovators, they could be rehabbers. Um, uh, they could be spec home supervisors. So you understand basics of good construction first, which is essentially what I did. I was in the renovation space doing all these things. Um, uh, that transitioned over from then to understanding why is it that most new construction projects fail. Uh, I spent a lot of time carving out my niche. I think most people uh, going to your question of what is it we look for is we like to specialize in a niche in one area. Like for, I'll give you an example. I've never been a big believer in fad construction. Like everything's happening in heights, let's go and build in the heights. Yeah. Everything's happening in Edo, let's go and do three-story townhomes in Edo. Everything's happening in Third Ward, let's go and do... So we, we've never done that. We've always spent a lot of time in analyzing and studying what kind of projects we should look for and what is the definition of profit for us? Right. So new construction definition of profits should never be volume of profits. It should always be uh, profits that can be created without your physical presence. Uh, that's the whole point of new construction. Yeah. Unlike rehab, where you have to be physically yeah, sitting Rehab there. is a rat race. It, it is. You, know, you have to be there. Uh, new construction should be things and projects that you can defer to either your subs or your GCs or your builder, uh, and you can manage the things specifically on the land acquisition side, on the money management side, and then on the sales side. Uh, and if I can create that with an average of 15 to 18% profits, uh, that's the first thing I look for. That's what our margins are. Now keep in mind, the projects are significantly- 15 to 20? 15 to 18 is, a, is usually- to 18. So that's not much different than a flipper. Let me tell you why. Because the flipper says, oh, I'm a 70% all in. Yeah, yeah, what about your holding costs, closing costs, Selling realtor cost. fees, and, and, and your title company? Guess what? You're anywhere from 10 to 20. Exactly. So, um, and I would assume that by doing new construction, there's no gremlins hiding behind the walls. That's the whole point. And that's the reason I said it's deferrable. I can yeah. take a project, I can copy paste it, and I can say this has this is the concept, these are the plans, this is a dry, empty land ready to break ground, here's a set of permits, here's your money draw schedule, go. And as long as we have we do a good job on the analysis, meaning uh, the sales side, mm -hmm. it's a relatively a straightforward thing. We never innovate on the on the on the sales price. There are people who so go, you, you try to stick within the market. We have always in the market. We're never below. Mm -hmm. I'm never the guy who will drive the price down Cheaper, and say, yeah. and I'll never be the guy who will want to sell higher than the market comp. Whatever the market will sustain, we, we will drive. The only thing that we are now starting to innovate on is the product itself that we're building. How can we 
um, how can we create that feeling of of uniqueness without it being a shock? So w- many times, uh, I've been guilty of that when I was new. You would go into these homes where every single room would be walking into a museum. You'd be like, I have this gorgeous, beautiful tile in the bathroom, and I go to the next room, and I have another set of beautiful bathroom. But it has nothing to do with the previous bathroom. Uh, I go yeah, into the living room. Different, yeah. It's, it's like, everything's like a wow fact. Everything's like... Yeah. And it feels like I'm going into a, um, a, a builder's office where he's showing me these... Yeah, where, where you go build, the, where you go select the materials. <laughs> exactly, right? uh, you know. So that's the first mistake a lot of I think new people in this space do, where they're trying to create this wow factor in every single space. Um, we 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 don't do that at all. I think we stick to a a personality style. We stick to a signature. So all our projects right now have a signature of woodwork. If you walk into a home, you'll see woodwork. That's a signature. So that you move into a next project, you it, it'll still look like any other townhome or any other luxury construction project, but it'll have a signature where you'll be able to create coherence with the brand. Good deal, man. So uh, roughly, how many deals have you done together in between new construction, rentals, that kind of? Oh my gosh, between uh, rentals and new construction, uh, if I throw in the wholesales, probably a couple hundred. Wholesales, because you, because that's how you started. That's how it started, and that's how real acquisition started. That's how you. real acquisition started. Yeah. Good deal. So, what's next for AG? Like, what what's the future look like? What what's so for the future for AG is I'm really getting more and more interested in, uh, um, and I think the aspects of our business that are dwindling. Um, there are three things that really I'm passionate about in our business. One is creating. A, quality construction projects. I think there are, we were talking about this a few minutes ago, which is there are a lot of uh, needs in our construction space mm-hmm. that are not being answered comprehensively. Mm-hmm. People are talking about, for example, affordable housing. People are talking about uh, better construction standards. People are talking about uh, providing options that are not just buying and living in a home, but creative housing concepts. But no one is coming up, I believe, with solutions that combine these three or four major questions. So, so it all revolves around new construction. It all revolves around... And development. And development. That's a better way of putting it. You yeah, know, development. Development. Uh, because you really can repurpose some of the existing relatively new construction. Uh, I mean, combining creative living or creative buying options with affordable options, with better construction in general. You know, So I'm, I'm really passionate about solving that problem. And the second problem I'm starting to realize more and more and more is, uh, um, and it's maybe above and beyond uh, your audience. I don't know if you have too many real estate agents or brokers that watch the show. Uh, we have all kinds of stuff. All kinds of people. Oh, yeah, all kinds of people. So this is the second problem I'm very passionate about, which is I believe this whole noise that is existing in a space, which is the real estate agent and broker becoming redundant and useless and not adding value to the supply chain mm-hmm. of buying homes is unfounded. Um, if, you, if you've been associated with the National Association of Realtors, you'll hear this constant uh, chatter that's been going on for the last four or five years where people are like paying 6% in the supply chain of buying homes to an agent or a broker is incorrect. That shouldn't be done. 
Uh, and I disagree with that. I sincerely disagree with that to the detriment of my 90% friends, which is the investors. But I believe the agent... Actually, I'm an investor, and I don't, like, I like to pay the 6%. Boom. Because I, they move my properties faster. They're going to go out there and put the signs, do the marketing, whatever. What we got to do is find a realtor that's going to go to work. There you go. So, and that's the crux of what I'm leading towards. Right. Which is the problem is not that they're redundant. problem, in my opinion, is that most agents in the investor space are not properly tooled. Mm -hmm. If we can teach our agents how to properly estimate properties, why is it that a real estate agent cannot walk a home today and come up with a nice line itemized construction estimate for a job? I'm not looking for him to be the GC, but he should be able to create. He needs to know a ballpark. He needs to know the ballpark, you know, and there's so many tools available. Uh, why is it there's no curriculum provided by, for example, Trek? that teaches real estate agents the concepts of basic real estate principles like assignments. Why is it that brokers today do not know how to work in a transaction, especially large transaction, where there is a wholesaler involved? Why is it that most commercial banks today don't know how to involve real estate agents in a off-market transaction? So all of these questions need to be solved, and they will be solved because there's you know big hedge fund money, big insurance money, big Wall Street money's coming into the yep. space. And if we don't solve this problem, some outsider guy will come and try to solve these problems. And the reality is people like you and I, we're doing this business, we're getting our hands dirty on a day-to-day -day basis. It's our responsibility to solve these problems I creatively. Agree. I completely agree with you 100%. I mean, we, uh, we say we're we're broker friendly we're agent friendly like you know there's ways that we can all work together absolutely and 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 you know but you always get that one agent hey do you work with wholesalers oh no you know wholesalers are bad <laughs> they're breaking the law it's like what law i mean really we're just assigning contracts anyways ag thank you so much for stopping by man i appreciate you uh you Love have a good a, talk man you have a pretty awesome story we were on for almost uh i would say 40 40 to 45 minutes i can guarantee you that we could probably talk for three hours if we wanted to <laughs> uh, you have so much uh so much to talk about not not just on the uh, software side but um new construction development you've done landlording i mean rehabbing and that's all those are different spaces where you can probably elaborate for hours on just one subject so uh thank you for coming how do we get in contact with you realacquisitions.com and realacquisitions.com and uh, reach out to us via email phone we have 24-hour support service we'd love to chat with you guys realacquisitions.com perfect and instagram is real acquisitions as well right uh I do not know, to be honest. What I do know is we are f on Facebook. We are facebook.com slash Real Acquisitions. Real Acquisitions. So uh, anyways, guys, follow Real Acquisitions. Uh, they have a great software that we actually use for finding off-market properties. And I'll see you on the next one. Don't forget to hit share, like, and subscribe. Make sure you hit up AG on Facebook, Instagram, wherever you can find him. Um, he has actually a very good event that we're part of uh, here in the Houston area where they usually bring speakers to talk about different subjects related to real estate and, and real estate investing. You want to make sure you make it there. The last one was awesome. I think you, you guys did a great job of packing the house it. up. Uh, the, I, I think it's too small for you now. <laughs> you outgrew the place. We did, we did. So that was the last event at that place. We're now moving downtown. We booked up a whole pub. Perfect. Then, so the next one coming up in April first week is going to be there. Good deal. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you. Thanks much.
All right, man. I appreciate it.